Welcome to the latest episode of the Forward Thinking CFO podcast. My guest today is Chris Rowling, who is currently CFO with CoinMe, a digital currency exchange based in Seattle. Now, Chris has held, uh, well, a very long list of C-suite roles and uh, in companies that are household names like PepsiCo, Kellogg's, ICI, Getty Images, EMI, the list goes on. Uh, is also being a partner in EY and in a number of PE firms. So somebody with huge experience. I'm very pleased to, to have Chris on the show. I'm sure he's going to give us some great insights. So welcome to the show, Chris Rowling. No, thank you very much, Stephen. I look forward to the opportunity. Good, good. So uh, you have had a lot of high profile roles and there's probably almost too many to go into, but um, perhaps you could just pick out what you think were the the kind of uh, keystone roles and, and the, the sort of um, major pivotal roles in your career that's kind of got you to where you are today? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, there's I've chalked up numerous wins and losses over the years, but, um, you know, I probably bored all of my colleagues and staff with, with virtually the same story. And, and it it's probably the most formative job that I had. It certainly wasn't by design, but luckily enough, it was the very first job that I had coming out of uh, grad school. And so lessons were learned at a, uh, a very early stage, thankfully. But I was a uh, freshly minted, arrogant MBA grad, and uh, I had been offered a job by uh, an American multinational, primarily to go overseas, just to take advantage of my kind of experiences and my languages. And prior to departing to London, the global CFO basically gave me a call and said, well, been a bit of a change in plans. We'd like you to be a plant controller, a manufacturing plant controller. Uh, And I kind of said, where? And uh, he said, Marietta. And immediately I'm thinking, well, that's France, should be nice. Um, And it turned out to be Marietta, Pennsylvania, which is rural Pennsylvania, also known as the Amish country. Uh, you know, I have alarm bells that go off whenever somebody says, well, it's a great place to raise a family. And it turned out to be absolutely formative. Um, I came in thinking I knew everything. Uh, I quickly learned that I knew nothing. Uh, It was my first, let's just say, management role where I had quite a large staff. Uh, I was trying to learn everything I could about cost accounting and standard costs and waste rates and and manufacturing terminology. And um, basically there was no way of faking it. Uh, It was plunged right in. Fortunately, although I I didn't really fully appreciate it at the time, I had a crusty, grisly old plant manager who uh, ate accountants for lunch. And uh, he basically would come into my office, essentially grab me literally by the ear, scream at me and essentially tell me that I can't and I won't be able to understand the numbers until I'm on the shop floor. And he never wanted to see me sitting in the office. He wanted to see me on the shop floor, uh, basically understanding what drove the variances, how could I help, building credibility with the workforce. And uh, needless to say, I spent 18 months with a hard hat and steel tip boots and uh, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I learned the product. I learned, I, I learned the, the value of true variance accounting and, and explanations. 
And, you know, I took it forward. Um, even in my private equity career, you know, it was very much my operational due diligence, which outweighed very much the financial due diligence. Um, you know, it was walking the shop floor, it was talking to the employees, it was asking them, you know, what upside do you see? What waste do you see? And uh, quite frankly, it was, it was very, very instrumental. So I always go back to that story. And um, literally, I, I've, you know, it, it's definitely formed and, and improved me. That's interesting because I, I started my career on the shop floor as well and um, I, I, I often think back to those days and uh, as you say, yeah, it gives you a, a kind of very real understanding of, of the operational drivers of a business rather than just kind of seeing them through the accounts. Or through no, the absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Pepsi, Pepsi had a tradition whereby senior executives would be required to spend two to three days outside of their line of business and basically back of house. And, you know, again, I, I remember vividly working at a pizza hut in Frankfurt, Germany, and starting out doing dishes and then graduating to be a waiter. And uh, same thing, I, you know, in England, I followed around the Walker's snack food driver and helped him stock shelves. And it not only humbles you, but it just basically gives you a completely different bottom-up perspective, which is just crucial, absolutely crucial. But um, yeah, lots of learnings. Yeah, because I think we've had quite a few people on here on the show as CFOs, and they come through a very traditional finance route. Um, not many have mentioned those sorts of operational roles if they've come through that route and uh, yeah I, I think it does uh, does give you a different insight and perhaps also a deeper under, uh, understanding and appreciation of of the people who are doing no absolutely I mean you, it definitely makes mm. you empathetic and um, I mean those roles are incredibly difficult and hard and um, no fantastic experience I you know well recommend anybody doing it yeah, I do. I agree. Um, so um, over the time, though, through all those, I mean, that was one role you picked out. And I, I mentioned a few of the others. Uh, I recommend anybody listening who wants to know a bit more, go and look at your LinkedIn profile. It's uh, a catalogue of uh, uh, brand names that everybody will recognise. Um, but the the key characteristics of, of a CFO are, are something that you picked up along the way. What, what, uh, what does... Does that mean? You yeah, I mean, again, there's, there's, I think, no one size fits all answer. Um, you know, certainly in terms of hard skills or technical skills, uh, obviously being analytical is is critical and key. Um, I think, you know, I, I personally have been kind of a jack of all trades, and I consider myself to be a generalist. And so, as a result of that, I, I do firmly believe that exposure or experience in really all facets of the finance function, be it, you know, pure accounting, FP&A, treasury, tax, um, audit, uh, you know, M&A, corporate finance, etc. Obviously, I think makes you a much more well-rounded CFO in that, quite frankly, you, you understand and you know what you don't know. And you know when to when to bring in the experts, etc. I mean, I am not a tax guy, uh, but I certainly know when I need help and and when I possibly don't need help. But 
So I think in terms of the hard skills, it's a little bit easier to answer. However, I think the soft skills actually become much more important as you become a CFO or as that role develops, again, because you become a little bit more external focused as opposed to internal focused. And so the soft skills, again, very much around, you know, leadership skills, communication skills, um, you know, a, a natural curiosity in, in terms of seeking out answers but more importantly, providing strategic direction or strategic recommendations in terms of what to do with those answers. And so those soft skills, um, you know, one can argue, can you learn them or be taught or are they natural? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. But I think fundamentally, deep down, the, the most important characteristic is, is just integrity. I firmly believe that the CFO is really the beacon of truth, you know, the arbiter of, of truth. And if you do not show that integrity and that transparency, you really have, have you know, no credibility within the organization, either internally or, or externally. And so, you know, integrity, I put at the top of the pyramid, and then probably the soft skills below that, and then kind of the hard skills as, as very much the, you know, kind of the fundamental platform. But uh, everybody is different. They probably rank them differently. But, you know, I, I do firmly believe that integrity and, and transparency is, is just vital. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few uh, CFOs I've talked to uh, have remarked on that, um, the soft skills aspect that, uh, that you bring up there. And uh, that they remarkably unprepared for that you quite often when they go into the the cfo or all or, or they've if they've if they're lucky enough to have had a mentor or a coach then that's been the one thing that that's usually a common theme that, that people have brought out that uh yeah that that's the the real difference yeah really absolutely the, the sort of senior level yeah now you've you've worked uh as a cfo um seeking investment and you've also worked in private equity firms uh, where you're obviously uh, approving investments or involved in approving investments. So you've probably got quite a, an interesting and maybe slightly unique perspective there. How, what, what kind of lessons have you learned from that in terms of, I guess, lessons for the CFO uh, that, that help you uh, raise investment um, and maybe also for the investment community, the, the sort of uh, seeing things from the CFO's perspective? Yeah, no, I've, I've certainly been on both sides of the table, the guy with the money and the guy shaking the tin cup. Um, obviously, when times are tough, like they are now, I, I certainly uh, would prefer to be on the side of the table uh, of the guy who has the money. Um, and it's become a, a bit of a buyer's market as opposed to a seller's market. But I mean, fundamentally, the investor is particularly private equity and, and venture capital. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of separate out strategic but essentially, they're looking for how do we double, if not triple, our investment in the next, say, three to five year period. And that's going to be basically coming through two different ways. It's going to be how do we reposition the company or rebrand it such that the company is now in a much richer, com comparable market. Um, and, and therefore having, you know, a, a multiple shift um, in terms of its earnings. 
And secondly, how do we expand sales? But really, quite frankly, it's going to be EBITDA. So how, how do we expand EBITDA? And as long as I think the CFO realizes that that is the ultimate aim, and if the CFO can facilitate the understanding of that or, or at least clarifying that path, I think it makes it much more, let's just say, investor-friendly and, and much easier to raise money. And I think certainly in, in my case, the fact that I've been on the other side of the table certainly um, gives me a little bit more credibility as we're speaking to investors, as we're trying to raise money. Because again, I, I've got a fairly good feeling for the, 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 the levers or levers, uh, as you would say, uh, in terms of what's really going to drive value, et cetera. So that's always been a, 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 a big benefit. A lot of CFOs think it's it's all around the P&L. Um, it's all around the three-year model. And the reality of that is certainly the private equity and the VC guys know what the accuracy is or lack thereof, you know, really six months out. And a lot of times we would just simply apply a 50% haircut to whatever the CFOs would provide. And, uh, you know, we'd be on our way. And so I think the CFO is is certainly advantaged if they can really kind of move beyond that three-year model or, you know, NPV or IRR model and really look at, okay, what can you, the investors, enable us to do with that additional equity or debt uh, such that, you know, all of us can have an excellent return. Um, raising money is not, e- not easy at all. Um, and, and, you know, we can perhaps talk more about that later, but it's, um, you know, it's very difficult markets and, you know, I firmly believe that good businesses will, will always raise money. It may not be at the valuation that they want, but really at this point in time, it's all about cash runway. Uh, it's all about, you know, a laser focus on working capital management or liquidity and, um, you know, fundamentally CFOs need to raise money sooner than they probably anticipated and probably raise more, you know, than they anticipated or needed, just given the fact that the markets are in flux. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, uh, yeah, I can see why you, you might want to raise more and earlier. But of course, then there's the conflict with valuation. Dilution and valuation. Yeah. No, exactly. But mm. Mm. I'd rather be diluted and surviving as opposed to... Yeah. Um, <laughs> being yeah. 80% uh, owner of, of a company that's failed. But it's it's a difficult trade-off and, and it's a bit of a negotiation. But, uh, you know, fundamentally it comes down to, you know, the ability of the company to pivot and change and, and reward, you know, the management and, team and, and the investors. And for what you're saying, having a credible narrative about how you're going to achieve those results, not not just, you know, bring, bring it to life, I guess, not just numbers on a spreadsheet. Here's a man who does spreadsheets for a living, but uh, I, I'm very... Uh, no, it's, that, I mean, the financial know, and, due and diligence, is, as I said, is, is critically important, but I think it needs to be balanced with the operational due diligence and kind of the strategic mm. planning as well. Yeah, yeah, no, um, that, that's certainly certainly true, I think, I think as well. Um, so uh, what's, uh, what's interesting from your experience, you've, it, the different roles, so you've done operational roles, you know, a senior level... Uh, you've been CEO and and CFO, obviously, and uh, all those different um, uh, aspects of being a, you know, a partner in a, a big, big four firm, 
private equity. So the, the, there's often talk now about business partnering and that the finance should be partnering with other aspects of the business. And I think you've probably got, a, again, a, a unique perspective on how can a CFO uh, best influence and, and uh, impact a company through the relationship with other members of the board? Yeah, uh, again, kind of an all-encompassing answer, but there's no question that uh, to be an effective CFO, you've got to build those relationships, build that credibility, uh, be it internally, uh, you know, be it with the board, and, you know, be it in terms of, of investor relations. Um, I think fundamentally, as I said at the beginning, um, it all comes down to integrity, trust, uh, do people believe you? Do they think you're you're providing a spin or not? And again, I, I think that that CFO is the arbiter of of trust and truth. And you know, oftentimes the CEO is the optimist, and you know they need to be the motivator. And I kind of view the CFO as almost kind of the counterweight, not the pessimist, but probably more so the pragmatist. In terms of, yeah, I'm totally supportive. Uh, yes, I'm very optimistic, but I'm a safe pair of hands just in case we don't hit those top line goals or organizational goals. And guess what? I always have a plan B or a plan C or a contingency plan, etc. And, you know, I, I think that that's what some of these other parties are looking for in terms of their relationship with the CFO is... Okay, he's the guy who who probably has the answers. He's a straight shooter. Uh, you know, there's no BSing around. We can trust what he's going to answer, and fundamentally should have a finger on the pulse of the company in terms of cash, uh, cash flow, cash needs, etc., uh, etc., et which are becoming much more important. Um, I think, you know, quite rightly, uh, the CFO needs to have at least a passion for customer service. And that's internal service, just in terms of, you know, we, we work for you, we provide you with the information. Hopefully the information we're providing you is value adding and enables you to take actions or at least make decisions. Uh, you know, same with the board, same with the investors. And, you know, the, the quantity of the information may change. You know, obviously, I may give much more information internally than I do to investors. And that's just part of the nuance and, and understanding of, you know, how a CFO does manage that role. Um, and, and, you know, it's tricky. And there's lots of landmines. And sometimes, you know, oops, I shouldn't have said that. But at the end of the day, you know, the CFO should be, as I said, the arbiter of truth and should try to be as fact-based and value-adding as possible. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Forward Thinking CFO. Numeritas created this podcast as part of our mission to improve the way finance makes decisions. And I hope you find the conversations as useful and interesting as I do. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or just talk privately about a forecasting or modelling challenge. Drop me a message through the contact form on our website at numeritas.co.uk and I'll get back to you. Now, back to the show. Great, thanks for that. And um, I've talked about you know all these large companies that you've been involved with at a senior level. 
let's talk a bit now about your current role, which is uh, a slightly different animal. The uh, uh, coin me, which is um, it's not fair to call it a startup now. I think it's uh, way beyond that. But uh, it's a relatively young and relatively small company to com- compared to a lot that you worked in before. So tell us a little bit about uh, what CoinMe does. And I'm interested also, who are the, the customers, users of your platform? Is it, uh, you know, principally kind of individuals or corporates or higher net worth individuals or? Yeah, you know, no, sure, sure. No, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the best of both worlds. I mean, we've been around for seven, seven-ish years, eight years actually. Um, but because of pivots, in the business model, it, it very much feels like, you know, it's a startup and, and you have the excitement of, uh, you know, new businesses and, and new partners and new opportunities. But basically what we do is we operate uh, the world's largest kind of fully licensed cryptocurrency cash network. Uh, we actually have over 20,000 uh, points of sale at the moment. Uh, we're virtually in all of the states here in the U.S., uh, so we're across 49 states, plus Puerto, Re- Puerto Rico, uh, American Virgin Islands, et cetera, et cetera. And we are just about to uh, embark internationally. Uh, we partner with very large companies, and so you could say ultimately that those are our customers. Uh, MoneyGram uh, is quite a large customer, and we just made a big announcement two days ago about a uh, quite a significant partnership with them. Coinstar uh, is also a, a very large partner; was our first partner. Both of them are investors in CoinMe, which I think speaks to you know the the seriousness of the partnership and and the potential of the partnership. But really, we're kind of what I've referred to as a B to B to C. Um, we crypto enable these, I don't want to say legacy financial institutions, but financial providers or financial services companies that are not involved in, in crypto or blockchain today. And what we do is with our APIs and our technology around know your customer, anti-money laundering, etc., we provide these companies, be it banks, uh, ATM providers, et cetera, we provide them with the capability of offering their customers the ability to buy and sell and hold crypto. And that's what we're doing with Coinstar. Uh, We're doing that with uh, MoneyGram now. And the users are very much individuals. So it's the us and the me's. The demographics are scattered all over. Uh, It's primarily a younger demographic, predominantly a male demographic. But Fortunately, we're, we're kind of sitting at the juncture of three uses of cryptocurrency. And one is obviously trading and investing, uh, and many of our customers do that. The other is payments. Uh, and again, you know, that is a large uh, and growing area uh, for cryptocurrency. And then the other one, which, uh, you know, certainly MoneyGram uh, facilitates, is the remittances. And this is essentially using crypto to remit to family members back in, in Asia or in South America, Latin America, etc. And it's a very expedient, very low fee way of essentially remitting money. And, and so it's, uh, it's, it's booming. Um, it's highly regulated on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's not regulated um, in terms of SEC direction or FASB direction. 
And so in many cases, we, we just simply default to the high road. We probably over-regulate. We probably over-report. Uh, you know, we, we work very closely with our auditors in terms of figuring out just how exactly do you account for crypto. And um, as I said, we, as long as we take the high road, we figure uh, the truth will, will certainly fall in between. And, and, you know, it's fun, but very frustrating. I mean, in the, in the early days, you know, four years ago when I joined CoinMe, you know, people scratched their head and they said, you're mad. You know, what is this? This is taboo. You know, I often joked that I felt, I felt like I was the CFO of a leper colony. You know, nobody would touch me. Auditors would not audit us. Banks would not bank us. And fast forward four years later, and all of a sudden we've kind of become the cool kids. And everybody is knocking on the door. Everybody wants to partner. The banks themselves are now looking into how we crypto enable. Um, and so it's been, it's been quite a reversal. And, and um, you know, it's, it's fantastic. It, it's good fun. Plus, you know, I've, I've worked for big multinationals. I've worked uh, for foreign companies. I've worked in startups. And I, I love the startup environment. It's, it's largely bureaucracy-free. Uh, you know, there are no segments or, or you're not really partitioned. It's kind of all hands to the pump. And it's much easier to really see the fruits of your labor and, and kind of the before and the after. And so, uh, you know, I contrast what CoinMe looked at looked like when I came in four years ago versus what, where it is today. And it's, um, you know, there's a lot we haven't been able to do, but, you know, it's, it's the before and the after is a completely different picture. And it's great. Yeah, I think uh, in a business like that, you can make a much larger impact, can't you? Um, I think you can. I think you can. It's much harder. You don't have the support. You but don't have the money. It's also harder to hide. You know, it's a challenge. But um, yeah, no, I, it's, you know, you, you either have a passion for it and you love it or, you know, you gravitate to the big multinationals. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think so. Yeah, you tend to be one type or the other. Um, so I, I've got so many questions I could ask you about cryptocurrency and, and so on. So, so do you presume you have to hold cryptocurrency in different types uh different i'm right on the edge of my knowledge yeah it's a good it's a very good question i mean fortunately we don't speculate um and we're not holding mm -hmm. cryptocurrency for ourselves we do have cryptocurrency on the balance sheet and the reason for that is if a customer goes in and buys crypto we need to have a an inventory of that crypto and we offer six seven different cryptos primarily bitcoin but we need to have an, an inventory of that Bitcoin such that we can immediately satisfy and, and move that Bitcoin into their wallets. And so at any point in time, depending whether it's a weekend or, or you know, a Monday night, we may have uh, a surplus of crypto or we may be at kind of a bare minimum of what we think we need for the next day. The problem with that, or, or let's just say the opportunity is the volatility of crypto prices is all over the place. And we need to mark to market all of that crypto that we're holding on our balance sheet at the end of every month. And we sometimes will see, you know, quite a bit of volatility in terms of the value of our, what we call digital assets. And, you know, one month they could be significantly, you know, up. The next month it could be significantly down. We end up having to mark 
uh, to market and realize, well, I shouldn't say realize, but we'll have unrealized losses. Uh, we may have realized gains. And that actually is kind of the complication that we have is trying to explain gyrations in the balance sheet, particularly on that digital asset line. We're asset light. We have no capex. We we you know have very few systems. You know we have IP. We have capitalized R and D, but we're very very asset light, um, which I consider to be a big benefit. And we virtually have no supply chain. Uh, you know we have essentially no receivables because our our partners are essentially collecting on our behalf and remitting the very next day the prior day sales. And so on the one hand it's it's quite simple, but on the other hand, the transaction accounting and trying to keep track of what was the price at the time of that transaction, et cetera, makes it very, very difficult. I mean, the most difficult aspect from, from my perspective is just the regulatory requirements. We're licensed in 49 states. Unfortunately, there's 49 different reporting requirements uh, in most cases. Uh, we have multiple audits uh, from the states periodically. And, um, you know, dealing with the regulatory requirements um, and, and dealing with the state regulators, quite frankly, as a customer, uh, it's, it's very, very challenging. And, and um, you know, we're, we're beginning to streamline it. Uh, the states themselves are beginning to work together, which is great. But, uh, you know, again, there's, there's kind of a lot of unknown and it's a little bit of the blind leading the blind. But um, it still a kind of it, it's worked. Industry, it's worked, really, but it? it's it's exciting, and and yeah. I mean we're watching crypto become much more main street. Uh, you know, people are adopting it much more. There is something in the technology; it's not going to go away. Um, you know, I think it will be much more regulated, which we welcome. Um, but yeah, I, I think it will be a new technology, and I think it will be embraced, and we're starting to see that in terms of many many large you know, financial institutions. And is there, if I were dealing in other currencies, I might hedge uh, against movements in, in the currencies or, you know, or swap, you uh, swaps and that sort of thing. Is, is there anything of that kind of derivative market in <laughs> with crypto or is this just too, too soon? I think it's too soon. I mean, there, there are ways of doing that, but again, it, it requires taking a position or taking a view and we simply don't go there. So, um, no. you know, essentially yeah, it's already volatile. You it's it's volatile, volatile. And I mean, to be, to be fair, the customer is picking up quite a bit of that volatility in terms of, mm. you know, the, the day and the time that they buy. And quite frankly, we fulfill that and, and we buy what we need. It's almost simultaneous. And so, you know, we're not significantly open uh, to that. And we don't necessarily suffer large losses or realize large gains. And so, you know, some of the other businesses out there, they'll take debt denominated in, in crypto. And uh, we've just decided not to go there. We're, we're doing some partnerships with some stable coins. And again, there's some value there if the stable coin is, in fact, stable and backed in many cases by the US dollar or sterling. But again, I mean, there's volatility all the way around. Um, you know, so it's, you know, I view it very much as Forex accounting, albeit 
you know, we're, we're not looking at colorful bills. We're, we're looking at digital currencies. But uh, no, it's a very good question. Some people go there and, and we've decided uh, not to take the risk. Yeah, and, and and is it mostly are most of the transactions done through digital wallets, and people have you know sort of, sort of more traditional currencies, real currency, if I may call them that. Yeah, correct. So um, it's either somebody yeah. who already has a wallet, a, a CoinMe wallet, or or another wallet, and uh, they will establish that wallet. They'll go through a KYC process, uh, which is required for us legally, and once they pass that KYC, uh, we will go ahead and we'll redeem or fulfill uh, their transaction into their wallet. And then once it's in their wallet, they can essentially transfer that out. They can hold it. And, uh, you know, now they can buy more or sell, uh, you know, either on the CoinMe app, the MoneyGram app, or, you know, uh, go into a MoneyGram counter location, etc. So it's uh, you, you do have to have a wallet uh, to, to buy CoinMe. Or to transact with CoinMe. Yeah. Um, but speaking of volatility, uh, the, uh, the, the if you've been watching the the UK and the pound compared to the dollar. Yeah, I have some retirement weeks, funds uh, given my twenty years in the UK. <laughs> so yeah, I watch it closely. It, it's had a had a bit of a bumpy ride. Um, yeah, just wondering if you've any thoughts for, for CFO. Well, not just in the UK. I mean, I think uh, there's there's a degree of turmoil and. Uh, change uh everywhere really in in uh finance markets and so on is there anything you've got any advice for cfos currently about uh how they should be uh, what should be focusing on any kind of areas of risk that they should perhaps uh keep a close eye on yeah i mean it's i think it's obviously situational and i i think it depends you know are they working for a large public company uh that's well funded that has float and liquidity etc or are they at a startup, you know, that's looking for seed capital, Series A, Series B, etc.? Um, you know, I, I, I think, as I mentioned, a laser focus on cash is, is fundamental. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's, what, that's the lifeblood. And in many cases, you kind of get carried away from that and, and you get very focused on new markets, new geographies, the top line, Obviously, the top line drives the bottom line, but there's a lot of other levers in there and, and influencers. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's it's the cash that you make payroll with and, you know, the cash that you need for CapEx. And, and so, you know, my fundamental, you know, recommendation is, again, that laser focus on cash, working capital management. Do we need to raise money? If so, I would suggest you go out now. I would suggest, oh, as I said, you raise more than you need, irrespective of, you know, keeping the dilution in mind. But again, it could be a one-time shot and things could get worse. Uh, you know, the optimist in me says, well, things will turn around, but you just never know. And so I think having to extend that cash runway, be it six months, 12 months, is just mission critical. And, um, you know, there's there's many ways of doing that. Uh, the CFO needs to look at debt opportunities, convertible debt, you know, factoring of receivables. Uh, you know, there's revenue-based financing uh, if you have recurring revenues. Um, 
and then there's, you know, fundraising, obviously. And, and um, you know, trying to fundraise in this environment is, is extremely difficult. Trying to fundraise at any time is difficult. But uh, doing so now is, is, you know, sometimes feels impossible. But again, if the CFO can make the company appear to be strategic, uh, you know, has the ability to deliver a 2 or 3x return, and here's exactly how we're going to do it, if the management team has credibility, has experience, has been there, done that, I think that certainly reassures the investors. But fundamentally, it's important to go out and raise what I call an anchor investor or a, a key, keystone investor. Because once you've found that keystone investor, they very much will set the valuation. And many of the investors that follow on, they're totally happy with that. It's like one of us, the professionals, you know, the non-biased partisans have set a valuation. And for us, it is what it is. And we either play or we don't play. And, and typically, finding that key investor is difficult. But once you found it, and once you've had that first close, filling the remainder of the round is often easier, quote unquote. But... You know, again, uh, you know, we've raised money on our own solo. Uh, we're currently raising money now with external advisors and help. Um, but obviously, your existing investors should be your first port of call. The existing investors ideally should come in because, again, that's that's kind of testament uh, to to your business model and and your future. Um, and in many cases, we use our, our existing investors as leads to other investors, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there's lots of articles in terms of how to raise funding during times of crisis, et cetera. But, you know, fundamentally, it comes down to making yourself and making the company investor friendly, you know, anticipating what the investors are going to ask for, having a virtual data room. Uh, but But really... You know, you've got to buy yourself time. And the only way of buying yourself time is to, you know, look at the sources of capital and cash and also, in, you know, simultaneously taking a very vigorous view towards how can we reduce costs. And in many cases, that's people costs. In many cases, that's, you know, contractors and maybe systems, uh, subscriptions, you know, on and on and on. I'm a firm believer in the, you know, 80-20 rule. I, I do think that 20% of the items contribute 80% of the costs. But, you know, again, having your finger on the pulse of the sources of cash and the uses of cash is, is just fundamental. So uh, kind of a waffly answer, uh, because I, I don't think there's there's one specific thing to do. But at the end of the day, it's it's, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Sure, yeah, and cash is still top. And cash is shit. cash yeah. is king, yeah. or as I say, yeah. customer is king, but cash is a close second. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, that's right. I've just kind of borne out what you were saying earlier about having a credible story and um, yeah, making it real. Really, that uh, you know, you, you need to be able to back up your your claims and forecasts. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's great uh, advice, and thank you very much for that. Um, now, just for anybody that would like to follow up with you or um what's the best way to contact you is it through linkedin and yeah uh, i i i think certainly linkedin is probably the easiest way and um no i i welcome all approaches and um 
certainly happy to help in, in any way, shape or form I can. Very good. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, Chris. Thanks for uh, all the uh, pearls of wisdom. And uh, I look forward to uh, to hearing more about the success of CoinMe in the future. And uh, thanks very much for being a guest on the Forward Thinking CFO. No, thanks again, Stephen. My pleasure. 